You're listening to the GameStreet.biz podcast. I'm James Bachelor, and this week I'm joined by... Brendan Sinclair. Jeffrey Russo. For our first discussion, we're going to be diving into uh, an opinion piece that we ran on the site a couple of weeks ago. Why Review Scores Are Dead by Alex Nichaporczyk, who's a CEO of Tiny Build. I'll link to the full article in the show notes, so in the description on your podcasting device of choice, and of course in the article where you'll find this podcast on the site. Um, it was a, a interesting piece. We, we'd like to share different perspectives on the industry. Uh, Alex has obviously got a lot of kind of uh, insight into how things work with certain types of games, particularly indie games, particularly service games. He made some interesting points, um, kind of summarising them very briefly. His point is that like games are becoming evolving experiences, so what you review at launch isn't what people play two, three years down the line, or even a year down the line. Um, younger gamers are finding games and discovering games in very different ways they're not necessarily like you know reading magazines and then deciding their purchases via reading which games are reviewed in magazines as i did back in my youth um and he was he was arguing that user reviews are perhaps more representative because those can be submitted anytime you often get you get more user reviews coming in long after launch than you do uh professional like critique reviews uh, you know, media reviews. It's like even the fact that a lot of uh, sites have dropped review scores uh, in their in their view review process suggests that even journalists, uh, some journalists, agree that review scores are completely pointless. Um, he cited Eurogamer as an example. So Eurogamer has for a few years now run they rank games as essential, recommended, or just no rating at all. Um, and I just wanted to dive into this because we've we've not really discussed the the review process before. We've not really discussed much about media. We obviously focus more on you know the business side and mergers and acquisitions that have been going on this year. So I thought it'd be interesting to just kind of get our thoughts on on the relevance of review, not just review, not reviews, but review scores in today's medium um I, i'll start with a basic question like and it's slightly different because we we are in the slightly privileged position of being close enough to the industry and following the industry enough that we know enough about games to decide whether or not we're going to buy them long before they come out and certainly I, I know some people feel like that when was the last time you a, a review influenced your decision and a review score influenced your decision to buy a game like an individual review, yeah. Or review score, it, or or a, or a Metacritic rating. Have you it's looked been a at while. Metacritic like, rating? Yeah, I I still I still look at Metacritic, um, actually, just to get like sort of a a rough idea as to whether or not this game is going to sort of like fulfill the expectations that people have of it. Like that's that's what I generally uh, think Metacritic is useful for you know if it's a call of duty game is it you know is it call of duty like enough does it fulfill what someone that wants a call of duty game is looking for and the metacritic review score the average one on the critic side anyways will kind of it's generally going to be like a tool that i would use for for that so um like we do our critical consensus pieces on the site and we still do them because we still see some value in them, right? Um, so we still believe that that things like a Metacritic average or a critical consensus are are worthwhile um, for some for some purposes. But I, I think the the purpose of the game review has has changed dramatically since uh, 
you and I were were you know growing up making our buying decisions based on magazine reviews, James. Um, and like back then, it was pretty clearly a a consumer product uh, review, right? It was it, it was the kind of thing that like if you're gonna buy a toaster and you want to make sure that it you know, toast both sides of the bread evenly and all that. And what features does it have? Like that's kind of the angle that game reviews used to be written from. Um, you know, does, does it crash? Are there a bunch of bugs? Is it, is it basically fun to play when you push right on the D-pad? Does the character go right? Um, and then, and then some, somewhere along the line, people just decided like, hey, games, games are art, right? These are these are creative works, and maybe we can look at them from a a more critical eye. You know, think about what what they're saying, what their goal is, and and what they're communicating to the player, and and whether or not they're achieving their aims on that front. And that kind of broke everything, um, because the review system. And the review scores system that, that that outlets were using was not really well suited to that. You know, like IGN would give, uh, it was a, a zero to 10 scale, but then they would also give fractions of a point and not just like half fractions. They would, they would give tenths of a fraction. And at that point, it just kind of, you know, becomes sort of absurd to look at a uh, you know a creative a work of creative uh, expression and to say like oh well this is this is an 83 it's not it just doesn't feel like an 84 to me I don't think it's quite 84 ish but it, it's definitely an 83 uh, and and I think there was a, a, te- a lot of tension for a long time in the way scores were given out versus the things that reviews were actually doing because i remember when i was at games GameSpot, which was 2005 to 2012 there were a, a number of instances where someone reviewed a game and then talked about how it might have a kind of a repulsive message behind it uh or or some other some other kind of aspect of it that wasn't specifically about that that consumer reports product review kind of model and then they would just look at the score and say oh my gosh i can't believe they docked this game points because of this thing that's completely irrelevant to how fun it is you know uh maybe the most notable one of those was with grand theft auto uh five which is actually after i had left and and carolyn pettit gave it, I think, a 9 or a 9.5 or something like that, and uh, had a paragraph in there about how terribly it treats trans people. Um, and and Carolyn just had to deal with the most incredible wave of hate, and the comments on that, that particular review were just, you know, they were a nightmare because people saw that and they saw some like actual criticism of the creative expression that was in there. And then they, they thought like, Oh my gosh, she's, she's holding the, 
the attitudes or the message of the the developers against the game which is a product which should be flawless and and this is wrapped up in like fan culture and and the just weird fandom you know brain poison that that's gone throughout the industry as a whole um but like reviews were already in this really uncomfortable place where they were trying to serve two masters there where they were trying to assess something as art and creative expression but then also assess it as like a mechanical product and and whether or not it is value for the dollar um so it, it was kind of teetering on you know the, the 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 edge of relevance at the time and then games as a service happened and that just completely you know upended the table and made everything even less useful um because if 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 a game is changing constantly you know from from the word go uh and even if the business model for for the game is different from what we're used to then like neither of those forms of of criticism the product review or the creative expression one neither of them really fit with the games as a service model and the the first example of that that i really remember is um kevin van ord's review of league of legends because league of legends was a free-to-play game when it launched but they they had a boxed product that they were offering um it was it was $30 and it was like here's we're going to give you a few things and you know other features that are launched when we launch them you'll get those too um so people were kind of paying in advance for it and it, it's a totally normal kind of business model right now right like i can i can go to best buy and pick up a fortnite disc for some reason um it's 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 an option there at the time though it was completely new and uh GameSpot didn't know how to handle it so they they were like okay well here's here's a game in a box on a shelf for thirty dollars kevin you review it and he reviewed it and he gave it a six out of ten and he was like yeah there's there's too little content a lot of the features that they're selling you aren't actually live yet so it's, it's, it's good to, to, to start with, but it's just not worth, you know, 30 bucks right now because you're not getting your $30 worth of stuff. And that very quickly kind of became a an outdated review, right? Just Riot updates League of Legends. They, they make a lot of good content for it. Uh, everyone loved the game. It became a hit. And... and the the answer that GameSpot came up with was like, oh well, we'll we'll have someone else review it years down the line, and they gave it you know a, a nine out of ten, um, and and this this games as a service, and I think this is a large part of what what uh, Alex from Tiny Build was talking about in his editorial, is just game game reviews as we knew them don't really work when the experience underscoring the review or underscoring the game is constantly changing and and being polished and being added to and when early access exists and and customers are much more comfortable jumping on board with something before it's really in a polished and what we would have considered before a reviewable state 
Um, and and with with the the kind of democratization of the internet, you know, ev- everyone's got an opinion and they're free to share it, and that's really good in a lot of ways. It wasn't so great for reviewers though because they used to have sort of the final say on whether or not a game was good, right? Um, but with so much pivoting now to be reliant on like, what's your steam review average? What are the recent reviews? What, what's the, what's the buzz on, on, you know, whatever Twitter trending, uh, game of the moment there is like, people just don't turn to reviews the way they used to, because they have a lot more options now to get a lot more opinions from, people who they perceive as being closer to them and their interests, you know, YouTube influencers and, and, and Twitch streamers and, and the people they follow on Twitter. Um, in, instead of just, here's, you know, a magazine that, that comes down from the mountain once a month and issues it's, it's, you know, seven to nine reviews for, for games. And there, there are entirely too many games now for any any review outlet to actually cover in in a reasonable, comprehensive way. So I I, I think the kind of the review sector <laughs> has has just been undermined in in a million different ways over the past fifteen years or so, and I don't think it's surprising to anyone. Like I. If, if you go back to like my time at GameSpot, they knew what was happening. Everyone there understood the like, hey, this isn't quite working right now. You know, when when Jeff Gerstman and and a few others uh, founded Giant Bomb, they they did reviews at first, but they they you know sort of quickly transitioned away from that, realizing that like, well, yeah, reviews just don't don't really matter as much anymore. And, and they found other kinds of coverage that was sort of unique to their voice and, and, and worked on in, in that way because, like, reviews might have been uh, big links, you know, big, big uh, traffic generators for, for websites once upon a time, but they were increasingly just becoming, you know, um, not the thing that would keep people coming back. You know, it was it was things like, oh, Skyrim, you know, it doesn't matter what we write about Skyrim. We just find more content on that. We'll, we'll write stuff about Minecraft uh, games that even before the games as a service model had really like taken complete hold. Just having, you know, digital distribution and, and online play would was pretty clearly uh, reshaping the way that people consumed their their games media content and and having sticky experiences that would that they would keep coming back to and that they would keep wanting to read more about was was clearly the the way of the future like like you know the freight train bearing down on everyone in the traditional games press at that time and that's about the 15 minute mark here so i think i'll let someone else talk (laughs) Thank, thank you for pausing for breath. <laughs> so, uh, do reviews still hold the same "quote unquote" water that they have in the past? No, I don't think so. As 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 Brendan um so 
you know, eloquently said. And that's because... <laughs> <Some> extendedly said. <laughs> but but to this point, it's like he said, it's because um, games as they are, you know, they've, they've changed over time. And, um, to, and, you know, even the article explains this, like, they aren't just these games that we load up or buy or, you know, just boot up and that that's it because they're 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 more than that now. Um whether it's a live service game, whether whether even even if it's any other kind of game, because now the way people interact or try to gauge media is also changing, right? Because earlier we, we mentioned how, you know, social media apps, there's just different ways of, of gaining information. So does it better serve a publication to say only have a written review, whereas more larger publications now will will have a written review, but they'll also have a video accompanying that, right? Um, if if they can or choose to, or they'll probably have a supplementary podcast um, to go with it. And, and and the reason why that is is because we as people it, it it's not so much we're looking at a product but i guess the question now that we ask ourselves is is this the kind of experience i want to dive into is this what i'm looking for because what i think the important thing now about reviews is that because games are doing so much more than they did decades ago now and to the shock of no one before i say this Yes, it's important to look at whatever the end product may be, um, but also, is it doing a good job of telling the story? Do the characters who are now getting more and more marginalized or coming from overlooked communities, do they actually feel like characters? You know, an example I like to use is, is Watch Dogs 2, for example, because I don't know which summer I was playing. It was the very first time, and that game is how, I don't know, what, six years old now? It's that, you know, when I was playing that game, I was thinking of, you know, how quote-unquote fun it was to play. Um, did Marcus, as this young black tech dude, actually feel like a random person? I would talk to in the street, like, you actually feel like a person. And, you know, thankfully, he did. Um, you know, things like that. And you know, the shortcomings of, like, were his interactions with, with people, did it feel canned or pan or, geez, you know, you guys maybe could have gone back to the drawing board. But, but but anyway, what I'm saying is that these questions are important now, and you see that within reviews that now the, I was about to say cultural relevancy, I don't know if that's the right f- framing, but that's important now, too. That's why... And it's always bizarre to me that when a, a major game comes out and it's speaking to a particular kind of experience, or let's be honest, trying to, you know, an important part of our conversation is not whether or not is it just fun to play. Like, that's not what some people care about. <laughs> a lot of people don't just care. Oh, okay, yeah, it's just fun. No, I, I would like to know, are the people in this game who look like me, <laughs> actually well-written characters or caricatures. This also goes back to the news of, you know, GTA Five this week. You know, we found out removed, you know, problematic transphobic content. You know, things like that. 
is important now. Yes, I think that's a crucial part of what reviews are 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 trying, you know. And to the credit of the publications, they're they're they're, they're making an honest effort to try to be more aware, you know, of these things and have that in in, in writing. And and I think that's really important to mention. And that's why. And with the article that we have, it, it speaks to the fact that what they were traditionally, I would say, has has kind of disappeared by the strength of what they're becoming more and more. And and I think it's important that when when we look at reviews, we have to remember that they serve different purposes for different people. And it's not all encompassing. And in matter of fact, it's very multifaceted, which is why different publications have different kind of reviews and why they choose the styles that they have, which the article that we have up on our site also speaks to. Um, so I and I think it's in people's best interest when, when they look. I know for myself, personally speaking, and I guess I'll use myself as a, as a reference point. I forget what game I was looking at that I wanted to purchase. Um, oh, Judgment. Um, the, uh, last summer went, but prior to purchasing judgment, what, what I did was that I've never played a Yakuza game before it, from what I know, it exists within that universe. So what I did prior to purchasing it, when it was on sale, what I did was I purposely looked for reviews from, from Asian critics and otherwise, you know, marginalized writers, because what I was looking for was whether or not they could tell me would this game be something that'd be interesting from the perspective of someone? Because, you know, I live in America. I'm, I'm not very privy to, you know, the laws um, and, and what the quote-unquote um, underbelly of Japan might be. And, you know, the reviews helped me pretty much understand that, okay, this is a game that that's very much like a, a drama. You, you're playing as this character who is investigating... Um, these underlying issues that totally go under the radar from larger things. And, and people are literally um, just being dismissed for X, Y, Z reasons that you find out. And I'm like, okay, this is cool. You know, this is the kind of perspective that I, I, I was looking for in these reviews because they were weighing it on, on those experiences, for example. And that's what I got when I played the game. And then I was thinking, you know, the other thing that helped as well is that there, there was you know, video and just, you know, critical pieces beyond the reviews that spoke about the experiences of the game and, and what, you know, one could expect or, or think about from a broader point. And what reviews are now, I think that it's not just what you see published on the site. It, it's also outside of that, it's like, okay, what what is the quote-unquote critical analysis you know even when we do our crit cons you know we, we see these reviews but then there's also those pieces that come out maybe a month later that ask you know more pressing questions is that did, did the game do a good job tackling you know accessibility difficulty um about how the characters feel i, I think about Deathloop, for example we got better pieces speaking to how like cole and juliana felt like you know, actual people like a month or two following, you know, the game's release because, you know, that allowed people the time. But that's supplementary on top of, hey, this game is cool, it's very bright, it's violent, you'll have fun. And I think that all, you know, 
goes into the larger conversation of what what does that mean now? And plus, we have the social media apps. You know, maybe a short TikTok video might sell you on a game. I really doubt that, <laughs> but I think it helps. Um, but yeah, I, someone posted on Twitter that uh, the horse in Elden Ring has a double jump, and I was like, ah, oh, I have to, I have to get this. Now. See, see, <laughs> and that's my point. I'll leave on that note. This is the thing: is that reviews. Back in you know, ancient times, of Brendan and I was talking about like reviews were essential. A review is an opinion. A review is one person's, one writer's opinion. It's an informed opinion because they've played the game and you haven't. But it's an informed opinion about whether or not this is a good game, whether or not other people will enjoy it. We are living in an age where we are inundated with <laughs> opinions. You cannot escape opinions. Because they are broadcast to you everywhere you look. Like, you know, there are articles, obviously, but there are YouTube videos, there are podcasts, there are tweets, there are Facebook posts. No one who has an opinion or has had an opinion, okay, that's a very strong way, I'll, I'll, I'll rephrase. The vast majority of people who have opinions do not keep them to themselves anymore. You, it's, it's, it's nigh on impossible to not know what people think about things. <laughs> and video games very much counter there. Like, I didn't read a single Elden Ring review. I don't think I even read our critical consensus, but I saw enough tweets about Elden Ring in my timeline to know, okay, this is popular. A lot of people like it. Maybe I should give it a look. Like, that's the influence there. Like, you don't need to read a, a specific article or watch a specific video, etc. You get the general consensus just from your own little echo bubble on social media. And, and theoretically... The people you kind of follow on social media are people whose views, the vast majority of them are probably people whose views align with yours or at least are somewhat similar. So if, if the people you follow and like and interact with on forms of social media enjoy a game, you might enjoy a game too. Like, yeah, so it, it's impossible to escape opinions. Um, speaking of which, here's another one. Um, we have a comment underneath uh, Alex's article on the site, which I kind of want to share uh, because it kind of it, it brings up a few not flaws in in Alex's argument, perhaps limitations of Alex's argument. Uh, so this is from Paul Ledbury, who is the news editor and writer at the Sixth Access, which is a PlayStation site. Um, he said it's a very narrow view specific to PC games in early access. And if you read the full article, you'll see that most of it talks about the fact that games change in early access and so forth. Um, Paul continues, people forking out £80 for a PlayStation 5 game are not prepared to wait months after they bought it for the game to be finished. The game you get off the shelf is, bar a day one patch, the finished version, and therefore reviews should be based on that. For ongoing games, most good sites do a review in progress and then go back to shove a score on weeks, if not months later. Um, as for taking your time with a review, which is something uh, Alex mentioned in his article, literally every review would like that, every single one, but we can't because we get codes too late, so late. I am going to interject there, like that is a very common narrative around every single review drop, or certainly <laughs> review drops with the big games. Is like journalists are often given, what, a couple of weeks? to review a game or even one week or a few yeah. days to review a game to comprehensively play through a game that may take dozens if not hundreds of hours and is expected to sustain like someone and you know entertain someone for months if not years on end and they have got a very narrow window to work out whether or not it does that and that that is something publishers need to get better at this is why like um, jeffrey was saying we get so much better writing about games weeks and months mm. after release 
because like that initial review rush is not conducive to good writing after you've just crunched an entire week to try and play through a game um and then also you just don't you don't get the time to really soak in it and and think about it from from different angles so i think from like a you know deconstructing it as a piece of media it's it's just so much harder to really do that with first impressions um so yeah like game reviews are are written under conditions that that do not you know permit them to to be better in a lot of ways and a lot of places they they'll freelance game reviews and and they'll pay like you know poverty wages basically a couple hundred bucks when someone's having to put you know a full work week into one game it just doesn't it it doesn't make sense yeah this cycle is 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 not good and um yeah, the conditions. There, there are cases where you know, as we're speaking about this, I'm I'm sure all of us on a podcast right now can attest to the fact that we literally open up Twitter and we're just scrolling and we see some person is vaguely complaining about the fact of Massive X AAA game is releasing in what six days and they're on assignment. That is. And this isn't something that just happened within two years ago. This has been going on for a while. Why publishers continue to do it, I do not understand. And maybe, and I know this is like a separate conversation in a, in a different possible podcast talk, but if the worry isn't so much that your product won't sell off the you know, estimated um, consumer hype that i'm sure you probably crunch the numbers that you're already comfortable with why not give people more time or heads up to craft better reviews who's to say i have no idea it's not good it's such an old practice i, I remember i was doing work experience on one of the old future mags it was pc gamer working experience on pc gamer and i remember hearing that um one of the team would have to be sent off to, they were going to go to a hotel for 24 hours. They were going to have a room at a hotel where they had a con- an Xbox 360 and a copy of Oblivion. And they had 24 hours to play that game for review because they wouldn't send out the code for security reasons, perhaps, or something. Um, and that's just not the conditions to write a review in. Like, And I'd, I'm fairly confident post-pandemic that's not happening as, you know, as much anymore. But like, I've, I've definitely heard some review events like that was like right you are locked in a room with this game and you will not come out until you decide whether or not you like it it's awful the, the one the one thing that that can be helpful with is um if if you're just stuck in a game um just because i i remember i i i should mention i did not review games at GameSpot. um so that was just like i was on the news desk and i would overhear conversations and talk to the reviewers about these kind of issues but i i, I can't speak directly for them i did review games at uh polygon magazine and core magazine and a website called zen gamers before that um and in the early 2000s like games did not hold your hand nearly as much as they do now more than in the nes days it's been a progression but like there were games where i would get stuck on the first level just because there was just one silly meaningless thing that didn't click with me for whatever reason and and when you have a review due for something like that and you like try to email your pr rep and they don't get back to you it's, it's just it's just miserable 
It, it, it was such an awful, like, gut-wrenching feeling of failure. I, I swear I heard that, um, or saw, like, like, games used to come with with walkthroughs. Like, if, if you were reviewing, like, the PR or someone would write a walkthrough. Sometimes. So that as you're playing... Yeah, okay. Um, to finish off Paul's point, just to, sorry, to go back to the main discussion... Um, his main point was like scores still work, he said, um, especially for one and done console games, of which there are still thousands every year. Um, also, getting rid of them would annoy the hell out of every PR department in the world because what the hell would they slap over their adverts? <laughs> which I think is quite a good point. Um, so yeah, I, we've spoken about this a lot longer than I expected to, but like thoughts on we've spoken about obviously like the nature of live service games and multiplayer games. And obviously, that those are almost impossible to review at any stage of their life cycle, but. You know, one and done console games, as you said, like you know, single player experience, etc. Those, I think, perhaps should uh, should still be put through some sort of review process and perhaps given a number. Like, I don't know whether the number is relevant, but that's what we're talking about. But I think the the prime example, obviously, recently, is Cyberpunk. Cyberpunk was reviewed very harshly because the game that was released was not in as playable a state as people expected, as people you know wanted. And lo and behold, it took him what just over a year to to patch that and fix it. And like, I know we live in the age where you can do that. Like patches and fixes and overhauls can be issued. But I still think it's relevant to tell people right before you spend fifty quid, sixty quid, seventy quid on this game, you are you need to be aware it will not run very well on your console or you know anything until they fix it. If they fix it, yeah, absolutely. And that's why CD Projekt didn't send out the last gen version to the game for review yeah and you know that's that's an important point too because it, it it's still important to know hey this game is fun after the game stops crashing in the first hour or so or what have you i'm not necessarily talking about cyberpunk but you know that that that's another reason why <laughs> reviews are still you know have a purpose so we agree. Reviews still have a purpose. We're just not convinced on the numbers. The numbers, the numbers are. Um, that's still very subjective, and I I agree that it 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 it's still an informed opinion. But what what I personally you know would like to say on this matter is that ascribing a number to to this at times underscores what a person is saying because you still have to read everything <laughs> that they're letting you know about the game because at times they can explain this is a very fun game to play within your entire weekend but ultimately you may just forget about this a month following and here's why but that may be perfectly fine for people and what they're looking for yeah, so I'm I'm kind of fine, roughly with the 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 numbers as long as it's you know like up to five stars maybe or thumbs up thumbs down, just because I you know when I, I find those helpful with film reviews even. Um, the one system that I that I always wanted and I I talked about this at, at, at Gamespot I I talked about it when we were starting up US Gamer, um, and and I can't seem to get anyone else on board with it is I want a review system based on expectations. So, cause I, th I think your expectations heading into something are, are so important 
for whether or not you enjoy it. Um, and what I want is basically a review system where the reviewer starts the review by saying what their expectations were heading into it. And then the review is whether or not it met them. And then then the, the review score is based on whether it exceeded the expectations or fell short of them. And, and that, I think, would invite people to read the article because just seeing exceeded expectations or short of expectations is, you know, one thing. But to really understand that, it's more obvious that you need to understand what the expectations are. So that way, something like Elden Ring can come out and a reviewer or Zelda Breath of the Wild 2 or whatever, and a reviewer can give it, you know, below expectation. And then if they just kind of explain like, okay, well, I completely misunderstood what they were going for here, or I thought it was going to be so much bigger, or I thought it was going to be this kind of an open world, but it's that kind of an open world. Because I think that those little disappointments and those little like surprising, oh, wow, this game's actually good. Uh, and I didn't expect it to be. Th- those kind of moments are, are, are part of what make, you know, part of what shape the way you feel about a game. Um, so that, that, was, that was the one like scoring system thing that I always wanted to see in games and wanted someone to, to pick up, but never, never happened. last thing we're going to discuss today is an interview that was recently done with the president of Square Enix, Yosoki Matsuda, uh, who, it was one comment in particular that people kind of picked up on. Um, it was the difference between kind of Japanese and Western games. So I kind of read the, the comments as they were. Uh, this is translated from a, an interview with Yahoo Japan. It was translated by Video Games Chronicle. Uh, he was talking about like developers trying to imitate the Western style of games. He said, nowadays the games market is globalized. The domestic market used to be big, so the market in Japan, but now it is behind China and the US. If you are not recognized globally, you are not in business. But interestingly, if Japanese developers try to imitate Western games, they cannot make good ones. The designs of the monsters and the visual and audio effects are still all somewhat Japanese, and players around know that this is what makes Japanese games good. Overseas markets are important, but it's not enough to only develop for them. Um, I found this interesting. We 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 were talking about this in a, in our kind of our team chat because I think there are arguments for and against here. Like there are. There are Japanese developed games that their strength is that they are very much kind of true to the the stylings of games that are popular over there. But there are ones that have struggled to take off globally because they are so focused on those stylings. So an example I would give would be, and I have to confess I've not played many of these games, but I get enough of a sense from what people have played, Monster Hunter. Monster Hunter is hugely popular in Japan. Japan never really quite took off in the West, but when you had Monster Hunter World and it was a bit more open world, a bit more in keeping with what people expected from Western games, that took off and now it's like I think it's Capcom's biggest selling game ever. And then Monster Hunter Rise did really well. Um, Elden Ring. Elden Ring is from a Japanese studio, but very much plays into that Western style of open world RPG. Your witches, your 
uh, Elder Scrolls, that sort of that sort of structure, and that has done brilliantly. What twelve million copies sold in however long it was, like the first month or so. Like so, I think that alone proves that Japanese games, Japanese developers can make Western style games, and that some Japanese developed games that are primarily Japanese styled can eventually take off in the West. Does that make sense? I've stumbled a lot there. No, I. I think I get what you're saying. The thing is, like, this has been an issue, I think, for about a dozen years. Uh, just kind of this existential hand-wringing um, for, for Japanese developers. And, you know, you can go back to, like, Phil Fish uh, and the comments about Japanese games suck in the, the late aughts and Keiji Inafune talking about how Japanese developers are just completely, you know, terrible these days uh back around that same era and i think it's it's kind of it's kind of bunk i mean you you went from having an industry where uh it was so japan centric and japanese developers made all the biggest franchises and games to it becomes a global industry so naturally you know, that kind of market share of the blockbusters should should decrease the the Japanese developers' share of them. And you had things like uh, Grand Theft Auto and Call of Duty and Western franchises like that suddenly became the industry's biggest sellers. And, and uh, Japan had, like there was Nintendo, you know, they, they still had some amazingly successful games uh, around that, that era with the Wii. But it, it was just kind of like, hey, we're not as big a deal anymore. And some of the, some of the Japanese uh, publishers were also stumbling. Like, I, 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 think, um, I think Inafune's Dead Rising actually was, was just like a fantastic, brilliant uh, game to appeal to Western audiences, but still had uh, a, a some of the you know Japanese game development qualities that that, but still had some of the qualities that were kind of seen as hallmarks of, of Japanese game developments. There there were some like definite choices made around like the save system, for example. Um, but around that same time, you had a lot of publishers in a lot of the big Japanese publishers like Square Enix and, and Capcom, uh, who, and Konami, who, who weren't producing big successes the same way they had been previously. And you saw Square Enix decided they, they bought IDOS, uh, Capcom decided to start really leaning into Western audiences with, uh, they've bought uh what blue castle i think to become capcom vancouver they they had the dead rising franchise which was to appeal to the western audiences they had uh they started working with with western studios for like bionic commando and dark void uh two two games that did not do terribly well they had the lost planet series which was well received at first but kind of you know lost steam and didn't really go anywhere so there were, I, I think there was a lot of hand wringing about, um, you know, Japanese games in decline. And when they talk about like, oh, well, we were trying to make games that mimic Western games. It's like, well, you were also having Western studios involved in making them in quite a number of these cases. 
and they still didn't quite succeed for you here and there. And that's, I don't think that's necessarily on, you know, of, of the fault of Japanese development, Japanese developers and the, the scene there. I, I think it's just more um, possibly a coincidental overlap of, of companies that were struggling um, combined with kind of that larger shift of like this, this industry is getting bigger and you can't have, you know, a tiny group of companies from what is now a, a limited market um, really dictating and appealing to everyone in a global audience. So like, I, I don't think that there is any kind of larger problem with, with the Japanese development scene. I, I just think it's kind of a reaction to them not being as dominant as as they used to be um i i i preface what i'm about to say with i'm not a (laughs) japanese game business um expert but you know the the comment from a granted the interview was short i i i hope in the future that you know CEO of Square Enix can um, maybe elaborate further. I, I think that would, you know, just just be interesting from that standpoint. But um, to his, his obvious credit, uh, he knows what he's talking about. It, it, it's not as if um, his comments are necessarily, you know, inflammatory or or dismissive in any way. He he's speaking from years of experience. From you know, he he was literally I I I'm assuming he was just particularly speaking from you know Square Enix's point of view. And let's not forget, um, not counting Final Fantasy uh fourteen, uh Final Fantasy seven remake sold a lot, a lot, a lot. <laughs> right uh, so to his point I, I think he was really just speaking about um, you know like Brendan mentioned um, des- design philosophies uh, approaches to you know style uh, execution things like that but but also we have to realize those things are really subjective right because the thing is when, when, I, when I think about that if you try to sit down and try to put a hard pin on whatever that distinction is for Japanese developers versus de- developers across the globe. It doesn't apply because, you know, you have games, you'll have fantasy games, you'll, you'll, you'll have games where you're, you're quote-unquote saving the world, you'll have action games that are stylistic in a way that that's trying to convey a story. Uh and the thing I think about too is that if you sit down and you're talking to me about the quote unquote differences there are from say God of War to the latest God of War to like Devil May Cry 5 you're going to do a lot of interweaving there because of what action games are of course when things start to get different is the narrative um, the things that you can do on screen etc etc uh, but 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 to his point, you know, when I sat there and I read those comments, I was thinking. But I've seen, you know, just being a consumer, 
design philosophies and, and, and works that have been inspired by either or, you know, just overlapping. I don't really see necessarily what stands out, but also you have games that have sold millions and continue to do so. <laughs> so it, I, I don't definitely see like a bad thing happening because there's still global chart toppers at the end of the day. This is this is kind of this is how creative media works right creator makes the stuff that they like they are also a consumer of other people's stuff and then they say that hey i kind of like that oh that's interesting that gets me thinking about this you know like uh super meat boy clearly owes a huge debt to mario and you know that was uh, Western developer mimicking Japanese developers. How many Western developers are mimicking Japanese developers right now and have been for years? You know, I, I think it's it's good and healthy for for people to for creators to like consume the work of lots of other creators and and kind of spark ideas and, and pick and choose what you want to mimic and then build upon and then incorporate into your own work and, and dismiss stuff that you don't think works. Like this is, this is sort of a natural part of the evolution of a creative medium, I think. And I, and I don't, I I don't think it's worth all this much hand wringing to decide like, Oh, well this mechanic is a Western mechanic or this kind of thing is like, like some stuff isn't going to work, you know, like when, when dead rising took a call of duty, like turn to appeal to Western audiences with like the, the third game like that, that was not, that was not a great match, but that doesn't mean that, Hey, looking at Western games and kind of incorporating bits of that into your game is, is a terrible idea for Capcom. It just meant that, you know, that one didn't happen to work. Yeah, I agree. I think it's interesting because you're in so dang- so much danger of getting into semantics of like what is a Japanese game versus Japanese developed game. Um, I mean, Brendan, you mentioned, you know, you've got a Western developer in Super Meat Boy's studio mimicking a Japanese developer with Mario, but Nintendo's games have always been quite universally designed. Um, I, th- I think there's nothing distinctly Japanese about most Nintendo games um like particularly not the you know the big franchises like mario and zelda they are just globally appealing interestingly zelda's brief tangent zelda has historically always been built around the kind of the western view of, of fantasy like kind of that tolkien-esque lord of the rings that sort of fantasy you know orcs and goblins and stuff and, and it, it built around that style of fantasy and then I've seen some really kind of interesting um, video analyses of how much Breath of the Wild draws on Studio Ghibli and like very kind of Japanese-specific stylings. And that is obviously the most acclaimed and the most successful of the series so far. Which I th- I'm not saying that that's the reason, but that's perhaps a factor. I think that the key point I think um, that, that Matsudo is making, and, and he's absolutely right, is that Japanese developers who, regardless of what style of game they focus on, do need to look beyond... The, their domestic market because you know case in point Square Enix obviously is desperately trying to I say desperately sorry are are doing more and more work trying to improve their Western games so the Tomb Raiders the Avengers and all those those are big big budget projects for them and that's that's becoming they're trying to make that an increasingly important part of their business 
um, albeit not the biggest part of their business, because the biggest part of their business is still mobile, and most of their mobile games are Japanese, like styled. It's very much kind of the gacha style, not Final Fantasy and Bravely Default sort of mobile games. But then um, I'd point to Bandai Namco as another example. Bandai Namco have been saying for years that they want at least fifty percent of their portfolio, at least fifty percent of their portfolio, to be like non-Japanese games, because they for years were primarily driven by things like you know. Dragon Ball Z, Jump Force, like all those, all the sort of you know, Naruto, all the kind of Japanese anime-inspired games, and they're trying their hardest to break beyond that. So that's why they've delved into over the years things like Little Nightmares, things like um, uh, things like Dark Pictures, and even the you know the Souls games to an extent. The Souls games have really kind of broken the West for them, and it's kind of built them a bigger audience over over here. So. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting that the Japanese developers and Japanese publishers, if they want to succeed on a higher level, on a global level, they do need to look beyond. I'm not, but I don't necessarily think that means they need to imitate Western games or, or as, as Matsuda says, like you know, they need to kind of play to their strengths. I just think it's interesting that yeah, J- Japan more so than perhaps any other market has a very kind of distinct style of game and distinct tastes of what their audience gets into and those don't always translate overseas but sometimes they do that is all we have time for thank you so much for listening to this episode you can find previous episodes on the podcasting platform of your choice and you can get more news insight and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz 